On front page with me this morning is Ida Nadira Ibrahim, journalist at the Malay Mail, and Annabelle Lee, journalist from Malaysia Kini. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. morning. It was nice to have all ladies in the studio for once. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this headline was a huge one this week. Dr. M in Time's list of 100 most influential people. This is following the historic election victory that swept him back to power in the May 9th poll last year. Sarawak Report editor Claire Rucastle-Brown, who wrote the profile summary to Tuan, described the 93-year-old as a formidable old warhorse who dazzled during a grueling campaign. You don't have to be young to fight the power. That was his quote. What do you feel were his most influential moments since GE14, Annabelle? I think GE14 itself was a very main key to how he was nominated. I mean, how he's in this kind of list of 100 most influential people. I think it is arguable to say that he was the main star of GE14. Of course, the people and their votes and the rest of Harapan and, you know, but but Mahathir, I think, was by far the main star. I mean, it was his massive charamas all around the country. He was crisscrossing the country, speaking till very late at night. Yeah, I think people were just impressed that he had all the stamina. Yeah, and people just wanted to come out to see him with their own eyes you know see why would this 92 year old guy would come out and do this again you know so I think that was uh, very influential in, I think in the mm-hmm. in the eventual results as well and um, mm-hmm. since then he has been a very old man shaping the very new Malaysia mm. so I think yeah, the, he has been making all the decisions you well, know your thoughts Ida well his reputation speaks for itself but you know uh, I think post GE14 after you've seen him during GE14 with all the charmas post GE14 you see him meeting a lot of different foreign leaders and striking a lot of deals and also one of you know his feature as the first Malaysian to be invited to speak at the Oxford Union is also um, a big feat for him so yeah the various uh, international recognition that he achieved due to his influence to be the person to be able to bring down the old regime is quite influential an old regime that he created yeah <laughs> right yes There's, um, very nice uh, you know yeah so he's had to kind of turn around and say okay well hmm <laughs> Being one of the oldest PMs in the world, is it proof that age is but a number? What are your thoughts? I think Mahathir is definitely an exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. I think often as journalists covering him, I think a question at the back of our minds is, how is this guy doing this? You know, right. he's it's so late at night. I'm tired. Everybody here is tired. But Mahathir is doing just fine. So I yeah. think uh, Mahathir is definitely, it's quite remarkable, his, his health at this stage of his life. Um, he's very professional. I mean, he never mm-hmm. really uses his age or kind of like fatigue as a reason to not attend functions or to even reject questions from from journalists. Mm -hmm. I think he's always been very professional, uh, I mean, since becoming PM again. But yeah, I I think he really redefines what old is and what you can do uh, when you're at, you know, what people call retirement age. Yes. All right. When we come back, we'll take a look at the four crimes to be governed by Malaysian laws if the Rome Statute is ratified. That's up next here on Light. On front page with me this morning is Annabelle Lee from Malaysia Kini and Ida Nadira Ibrahim from the Malay Mail. Now, there are four crimes to be governed by Malaysian laws if the Rome Statute is ratified. That's genocide, war crimes, humanitarian crimes, and invasion. It'll all come under Malaysian laws if the country ratifies the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, says Foreign Minister Dato Saifuddin Abdullah. He said following ratification, the new laws must be included in local legislation either through the amendment of 
of existing acts or creating new ones without the need for any amendments to the federal constitution. Okay, so what complications will this move create? I think it's interesting that the foreign minister is still talking about the Rome Statute. I think Mahathir was quite clear in saying that the government will not be even considering, I think, assigning it again after withdrawing from it. But I think complications-wise, maybe... I mean, we saw what happened with the Rome Statute, right? It was signed mm-hmm. and then all the confusion and it backfired in Harapan's face. I think this is what happens when something is not explained properly. It's something that the government does when it's not explained properly. It gives uh, rise to a lot of uh, misinformation and confusion over what it actually is. So I think that is a very key complication. I think that is what we saw as well twice right. with the ICERD and the Rome Statute. But yeah, I mean, when, when you do rectify something, especially a UN kind of instrument or document, that means, it's not compulsory, but it means that you should align your laws to whatever the, the instrument calls you to do. Right. Under what circumstances will cases go to the ICC, Ida? Well, there are some current conflicts that are ongoing that are good examples. Like, for mm-hmm. example, what's going on to the the ongoing Rohingya conflict in yeah, Rakhine State. The, and then there's also the Israeli-Palestine uh, conflict. So these are examples that could be brought to the ICC if such incidents take place here. Right. Now, genocide, war crimes, humanitarian crimes, invasion trials in local courts. How would that work in the Malaysian justice system? I mean, we create new laws all the time. And these are, I think, everyone can probably agree with these four things are pretty bad stuff, right? I don't think there's much contention to that. So I think um, definitely having laws to prevent them from ever happening in Malaysia is Mm -hmm. probably possible and and, and a good thing. I I, I mean, we're we're lucky or happy that these things have not happened here, but they have happened over the course of human history in many places in the world. So to prevent them from happening in Malaysia is, is a good thing. I, I think that's that was the point as well. Right. When we come back, we'll be taking a look at the billions raised uh, for rebuilding Notre Dame after the tragic fire that engulfed the uh, upper portion of the cathedral. Uh, that's up next here on Light. On front page with me this morning is Ida Nadira Ibrahim from the Malay Mail and Annabelle Lee from Malaysia Kini. Let's take a look at the billions raised, 1 billion euros raised uh, to rebuild uh, Notre Dame after the fire. This uh, was raised in just two days. It's amazing stuff, really. And um, French President Emmanuel Macron said, we will rebuild Notre Dame even more beautifully and I want it to be completed in five years. We can do it. It is up to us to change this disaster into an opportunity to come together having deeply reflected on what we've been and what we have to be and become better than we are. I mean, mind you, some of Europe's wealthiest people are the ones behind this fundraiser. So um, here's the thing. It just goes to show that the world's richest, when they have a will to do something, if they're moved enough, they can. Okay, yeah. The fact that we have ongoing poverty yeah. and homelessness, even in some of the wealthiest countries in the world, and world hunger globally, which goes unaddressed. I mean, what is this saying about society? Ida? Of course, it puts things into perspective uh, to show how wealthy the rich are that and how able they are to, to give aid towards a crisis if they are set for it. But then if you're looking from an art conservation point of view, specifically, Notre Dame is not just any historical building. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it goes beyond. It's even older than Eiffel Tower itself. So some historical architecture should be preserved because it reflects our yeah. culture. Well, not our culture. Well, not our culture. <laughs> Their, Their culture. culture. <laughs> but, you know, talking 
in a I mean, I guess general this is perspective. Just, uh, yeah, social commentary. What are your thoughts? But I think I, I really enjoyed the conversation that came from this, right? A lot of people were saying, yes, this is a very historical, cultural, li- religious mm-hmm. building, but it's a building, right? That, that, uh, and it was a wooden roof. So, so, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think the, a lot of the talk was centered around a lot, some of this money can go to social aid programs and social mm-hmm. welfare programs. And I think the context of France today is very important. I think the past few months, uh, Emmanuel Macron has been uh, faced with so many protests in France. They're called the Yellow Vest protests and, yes. and it, it has been against basically inequality and how come the rich are so rich and mm-hmm. they're not taxed so much. Why the working class tax so much? I think some of the main things they were protesting against was also income in- inequality, right? So I think that is an important context to look at it from as well and, and when a disaster like this happens and it was a disaster, uh, the rich are so quick to open their checkbooks, right? So I think that just shows how rich and powerful the rich and powerful really are and why there's so much discontent against that act of benevolence I think in any other context it would have been seen as oh wow thanks you know but I think in the context of France today I think that is really important well it's also interesting to note that President Trump has pledged to help the Disney company has pledged some five million dollars meanwhile they've got Puerto Rico still in crisis three black churches that were willfully burned down to the ground in Louisiana Mm -hmm. recently and the ongoing water crisis in Flint, Michigan. I mean, but I think it's important to <laughs> note as well. At the same time, Notre Dame was mm. uh, uh, you know, in flames. The Al Aqsa Mosque yes. was also having a fire, and that's an even older exactly. And there was yeah. very little talk about that. And I don't yeah. know how many people have pledged billions, millions mm. to that. So I think that also shows where the conversation is uh, in the world. Yeah, very select. When we come back, we'll be taking a look <laughs> at the vacant Chief Justice post, uh, set to be the latest flashpoint between Putrajaya and the Royals. That's up next here on Light. On front page with me this morning, Ida Nadira Ibrahim from the Malay Mail and Annabelle Lee from Malaysia Kini. The vacant Chief Justice's post is set to be the latest flashpoint between Putrajaya and Royals. The federal government and the Malay rulers could again tangle over another crucial appointment uh, with a report suggesting that the latter were holding up the replacement for Tan Sri Richard Malanjum, who retired as Chief Justice last week. The appointment of the country's most senior judge must gain consent of the Yang Di Pertuan Agung to be effective, which it has not, leaving the judiciary leaderless for the time being. So I, I'm curious, how is a Chief Justice selected? So the Prime Minister usually nominates the okay. candidate for the Chief Justice and it is for the Yang Di Pertuan Agung to appoint and to agree to it. Okay, and what is Chief Justice Tan Sri Richard Malanjum known for, Ida? Well, prior to his appointment as a CJ, he was one of the most senior and experienced federal court judge. And for Sabah and Sarawak, basically, he also played a huge role in transforming the Sabah and Sarawak court system uh, prior to that, such as introducing the e-filing system for all the courts. So yeah, that's some of his achievements before that. All right. Uh, do you think he has a good chance of becoming Chief Justice? Mm, not again because he's already past the retirement age I think he's 66 and a bit more than that but I think it's interesting to note that he was only the Chief Justice for 9 months very very short Yes, but I think uh, like what Ida said 
even before that, when Tan Sri Rao was, was, was appointed as the Chief Justice, he was one of the main contenders because of his really long history in the judiciary. This guy has mm. been a, a judge for 27 years. I mean, yes. now now he's been... So that, that's, like, that's like someone's career as a mm-hmm. lawyer sometimes. And he has been a judge for that, that amount of time. The Bar Council, I think especially, was very uh, happy with his nine months, even though mm. it was very, very short. I mean, one of the things I think that I will remember him for is how he had huge panels, seven... Me- seven-person panels, nine-person panels for, you know, public interest cases just to show the public especially that they are committed to being fair, right? right. I think that was quite important. Okay, when we come back, we'll be taking a look at this latest report that fresh graduates are earning less these days because they lack digital savvy. This is according to recruiters. We'll be discussing that next here on Light. On front page with me is Annabelle Lee, a journalist from Malaysia Kini, and Ida Nadira Ibrahim, journalist with the Malay Mail. Now, a new study is, is looking at fresh graduates and why they're earning less. It's because of a lack of digital savvy, according to recruiters, and also in an increasingly competitive job market and tough economy, recruitment firms and economists suggest that uh, you know young people get realistic about salaries and benefits and all of that. Is it fair to say that our fresh graduates lack digital knowledge? I don't think so. I think especially fresh graduates today would have been digital natives. Mm-hmm. I think they've probably grown up with technology, phones, devices all around them. Maybe what they lack is computing, certain computing skills or certain technical expertise, but yeah. to say that they lack digital knowledge, mm-hmm. whatever that means, to me it's a pretty general, all-encompassing term, right. I think is probably not true. <laughs> Your thoughts, Ida? They have to be specific on what digital skills they're talking about because mm-hmm. like Annabelle said, that this generation was raised in the digital age generation. Yeah. So, you know, obviously they have like a lot of exposure to its uh, digital knowledge. But if you're talking about technical digital skills, then maybe mm. perhaps that's, that's, that's an issue. another, yeah. And I think they have to be pretty specific about these things yeah. when they come up with these kind of reports, isn't it? Now, boutique HR consulting company Human Synergy said some employers refuse to pay fresh graduates competitive salaries because they had a higher risk of quitting and tend to job hop. Is it fair to say that millennials tend to quit in job hop? Ida? Well, you can't blame them, can you? Because looking at the current economic situation, the condition right now, like for millennials, survival goes beyond loyalty. So whichever company that can offer a more competitive package, then obviously Mm. they will go for that. This is not like, you know, the generation of our fathers. It's not the same anymore. We need better salary, better package to able to survive right in the current I guess economy. it takes the uh, the first I mean it's a weird chicken and egg thing and I guess the employers need to step up and maybe take that risk that you know if you offer a higher salary better package that these people will stay but I think a key point is the reason why job hopping has become the norm is because precisely because that has become the best way to get a salary increment not yeah. promotion at your existing job which you would expect right mm-hmm. but no that that has not been the case uh, and that's why people are looking you know when I want a salary increment when I want a better package I have to change jobs Mm. so I think people only do that when they don't find it where they are but I think just putting this whole I found this study quite interesting this job street study because just maybe last month Bank Nagara came up with their report their 2018 report and they had a quite a interesting study on the Malaysian labour market and I think they came up with pretty different conclusions I think what they concluded is they compared the Malaysian labour market with that of 
some developed countries, Singapore, Germany, Australia, the UK. And Malaysian workers actually earn a lot, lot less for the same amount yes. of work as their counterparts in those, yes, more developed countries. And I think, but, but, but that's what we want to be moving towards. So I mm-hmm. think that's why they kind of benchmarked it against those countries. And I think one of the key things that I thought was really interesting was how the Malaysian economy is very labor intensive, but how a lot of the laborers, the workers, the employees were not getting a big share at all. It was only right. a 30% share of the national income. So in fact, it's the employers and the people who own the businesses mm-hmm. who actually hold on to most of the money. So I think when it comes to uh, discussions about income and discussions about wages and how saying that the workers are the ones who are not meeting the criteria and the standards, I think a better, deeper discussion as to yes. what the employers are willing to do as well. Because I think we all know that it's uh, the employers who decide how much they want to pay mm-hmm. their workers. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. Annabelle Lee from Malaysia Kini and Ida Nadira Ibrahim from the Malay Mail. This hour will be on our podcast list um, after 10 a.m. This morning, just go to light.my.